Welcome to Documentary Storytellers, a podcast exploring the ideas, experiences and practices of photographers and filmmakers driven by a desire to have a positive impact on the issues they document. This episode features Laurel Chor, a documentary photographer, filmmaker and journalist who's exploring a range of different topics from manta ray conservation to the war in Ukraine using a variety of media. We explore the biases we as individuals have that influence how we explore the stories we document, but also the value of our own unique experiences and perspective. We talk about the challenges Laurel has experienced being a woman of colour, the need for self-care to ensure we're able to continue to document the issues we care about and push for the change that we want to see, and much more. To ensure you're kept up to date on the latest episodes and other news and developments from Documentary Storytellers, then please subscribe to this podcast and to the newsletter at documentarystorytellers.com forward slash newsletter. Thanks for listening. If, first of all, you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and the work that you do, that'd be great. My name is Laurel Chor and I'm a freelance journalist, photographer and filmmaker from Hong Kong, currently based in Oxford, England. And you've covered a diverse range of stories, like from the war in Ukraine to how uh, strippers in Florida have been dealing with COVID. What are the, the motivations for exploring these stories? Because it's very, very diverse in their range and content. Yeah, I think um, I ask myself that question a lot of the time, because I think when I'm trying to introduce myself or trying to present my work, and define or describe the things that interest me or, or that I cover. I haven't really figured out a way to uh, some succinct phrase, um, but I'm very curious. I get easily distracted. I care about a lot of things. Uh, so obviously the war in Ukraine, as a freelance journalist living in, in the UK on the same continent, it was a very important story that as a journalist, I, I wanted to witness and, and document myself. And rather unexpectedly, I have become very committed and invested in the story. You know, now it's been over a year and I've spent uh, more than six months there, more than half of the last year in Ukraine. I'm learning Ukrainian. And now I'm right now the, the main project that I'm working on in general is a is an independent documentary about three civilians, three people, primarily in Donbass. Um, and we've been filming that for, for almost a year that me and two colleagues, my co-director Arman Dudovich and our local producer Andriy Kalashnikov. Um, as for the strippers in Florida, you know, I was I was in Florida at the time. I, I was visiting family. My sister lives there. And I think um, I just wanted something to do. I think I just I, I wanted to feel productive. I wanted to, to get some work done and out there. And I was talking to my brother-in-law and I was asking him, like, what is what is Tampa known for? <laughs> like, what are some interesting stories that that I can do here? And he and he's like, yeah. And he's like, uh, strip clubs. <laughs> um, and yeah, I guess Tampa is known for strip clubs. So I, I looked into it. You know, this is sort of pretty much at the peak of COVID or, or right past the peak of COVID, at least for Florida at the time. And I was like, wow, like, God, like, what is it like to be a stripper during COVID in Florida where, you know, we all have, uh, we've all heard of Florida. <laughs> 
um, and all the connotations that come with it. So I was just really curious and it seemed like a really fun story, you know, totally outside of my comfort zone. It's, it's a group that doesn't get represented often, I guess. I mean, it gets depicted, they get depicted often, but they don't necessarily get represented. Their voices don't get represented. And, and actually I think my brother-in-law's reaction, um, bless him, love the guy, but you know, he, he was like, why, like, why would you do a story about strippers? Like, why don't you you know, do something about like this environmental thing or that environmental thing. Like, and that reaction alone made me realize the stigma that they face, you know, of course they do. But I think, you know, it made me realize like, yeah, no one probably is thinking about what it's like for strippers to work during COVID. So I, I just started reaching out to different strip clubs and, and they were really nice about it. And the dancers that I spoke to were, were so incredibly kind and generous with their time and stories. But uh, all that to say, you know, I, I love working on new things. I, I, I love being challenged. I love learning new things. I always want to understand the world better and people better. So, you know, I might have a long ongoing project like this documentary about the war in Ukraine, but on this side, I also am interested in other things. I mean, a story that I did last time, actually, for the same publication as the one about strippers in Florida, I did a story about drag queens in Kiev, which I actually haven't shared on Instagram, but it's been out for a while. But uh, yeah, I, I, I just love having the opportunity through my work to really just talk to people that I have so many questions for. And then, yeah, having a variety of projects ongoing anytime is sort of just how I operate. I have ADHD, so, you know, I think that's just kind of what I need to keep myself occupied and, and to thrive or try my best to thrive, at least. But none of these stories that we've talked about thus far have anything to do with your master's, which, <laughs> which you know, in your, in your brother-in-law's defense is maybe why he was suggesting environmental <laughs> stories, because your master's is in biodiversity, conservation and management. So, so yeah, maybe let's start with that. Like, if you're doing a master's in that and you're really obviously that's uh, an in-depth exploration on, on this subject and yet you're exploring um issues around conflict and society and, and other things so yeah yes um also something that i struggle to explain to myself let alone other people but uh yes i'm doing a master's i'm taking a while to finish it for all the reasons previously mentioned <laughs> um i mean i should I absolutely need to finish it by September 1st. I only, only uh, have my 30,000 word dissertation left. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think <laughs> I've always had an interest in the environment. You know, growing up, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I wanted to be a forest ranger. I wanted to be a scientist. Um, I always had a deep interest in nature and conservation and wildlife. And I wanted to go back to school because, frankly, I like school. I kind of need structure, you know, ADHD. Uh, <laughs> I, I need structure so it helps to, to just, like, sit down and and being forced to read and learn and, and produce work in a with deadlines and uh, guidance, but I guess like these are all topics I'm I'm really interested in about. I think, you know, I think ultimately I probably really want to figure out, you know, why why isn't the world the way it should be? And I'm not claiming to know the way the world should be or or that anyone does. Um, but I think I certainly know that there are many areas in which we can do better. Whether it's 
the environment or conflict or social issues about populations that are traditionally marginalized. Um, you know, I think I, I want to understand, you know, why, why can't we just get along <laughs> and work together and treat each other with respect in order to solve all these problems that affect us all, whether or not we like it. And there's so many different ways to tackle that. And, and I think all of these issues that I care about and do stories about, I actually think they're kind of all pieces of, of the same big puzzle. And I just have a lot of different interests. You know, my dissertation is about manta ray conservation. You know, it'll be about how the media has affected manta ray conservation. So yeah, I think I just have a lot of different parts of my brain that kind of need constant stimulation, whether that's like academic papers about the way underwater nature films can help us create worlds in our head that are more empathetic to manta rays and decenter the human experience and also how you know war is affecting people and how awful that is and telling that story through photos and documentaries these are all just parts of my brain that that I like to stimulate to <laughs> with all these different things so yeah I think I just have a lot of different interests and and to me they don't seem unrelated, although I have not really figured out a way to articulate how I think they're related. And actually, you know, I think what I just said was maybe a bit of a first attempt. I think that does bring it all together. It's it's realizing that we have so much more potential in terms of our relationship with other people, with uh, nature or, you know, the rest of the natural world and things. And, and that knowledge exists. You know, it's there. We, we understand that what things could be. And yet we're so far from reaching that potential and, and getting to that point where we are living a, a more egalitarian, um, equitable life with within our societies and with the, the wider natural world. So so yeah, I think I think that it's understandable for sure. Yeah, exactly. I'll I'll uh, write that down and put that on my website. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> So why visually though? Why I know you have you you write as well, and you've uh, stood in front of the camera as well, and not just behind. But why do you particularly choose visual media? Um, because you say in your bio that photography is your your true love. So why why the visual? Um, I think it for me it's a very visceral response. I think I respond most to the visual medium especially especially to to photographs and I think to a large extent that's how I process the world and express myself you know if someone asked me how my day went or what a trip was like I might not write a single word <laughs> but I'll just send them a bunch of photos and and call it a day um so I think that's just that's what makes me feel most and that's what speaks to me the most personally and that's what comes the most naturally to me but that said like you said I've done podcasts I've been in front of the camera I do video I write um you know those are also fun mediums to experiment with and everyone you know processes information differently there's so many different ways to tell stories or so many different ways to reach people there's so many different aspects of any given reality or story that you can try to convey and that every you know every medium is able to convey a different side but yeah in terms of photography I think yeah it's just what it's what speaks to me I think it's also you know, universal and transcends language. I think as someone who grew up 
exposed to a lot of different cultures and straddling different cultures and, and having lived in different places, I think, you know, it's the one medium where I can show pretty much anyone I know and know that they'll at least be able to appreciate um, most of the meaning I'm trying to convey um, as opposed to like, I don't, I don't even know if either of my parents have ever read anything I've written, to be honest, come to think of it. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure they've seen my photos. So that's fine. That's, that's, that's all of it. So yeah. <laughs> so obviously, your your driving force is but is, is curiosity and wanting to understand what's what's happening in front of you and, and try and comprehend why there is this disconnect between our, our potential and what's actually occurring is there is there a drive to also have impact so obviously that's that's informing and trying you trying to grow as a person and as an individual and, and your worldview and, and try and make sense of it all but what about uh, does impact factor in this at all is there anything that you want um, your work to do and to achieve and yeah Absolutely. I think I generally assume everyone is as curious as and excitable as I am. So, you know, any story, I guess, even if it's driven by my curiosity, I think it's always driven by the like, hey, guys, like, isn't this cool or interesting or important or something that we should all be reading or learning about? So I think that more so than just like this inner curiosity, I think that is what drives me. I think just this urge to to tell everyone about it just out of like sheer excitement, like desire to share what it, I find interesting because surely you would too. Like how cool is this or how interesting is this? Is this? And, you know, I certainly don't claim that I know how to have an impact or that I've had an impact or or that storytelling is a very has a causational uh, link to to impact I mean of course it, it has but you know it, it, in general it's it's pretty nebulous and hard to quantify or pin down but yeah I think I think with all these issues that I care about I, I really do think that if we all learned more and had more empathy and just learn to care about these things that might not have even ever occurred to us as things to care about, then I would like to think that we would be a step closer to making the world a better place. You know, I think I really do believe that people have the capacity to care about all these issues that we should all be caring about. But I think it's just a question of, of bridging that gulf or divide, whatever they may be, and and finding a way to, to make people understand and feel emotions and empathy towards people or issues or even animals or non-living creatures or, or whatever that, that need attention. So, you know, and, and I was just having this conversation yesterday with fellow journalists. I think what's easy as a journalist um, and, and even, you know, for, for academics to a large degree is it's I don't necessarily present solutions a lot of the time, which is a critique and a fair critique, right? Like I, I think the part that I'm trying to do is, is just hopefully make people care and interested about issues. Um, and I do think the solutions are out there. I think there's a lot of very smart, competent and hardworking people out there working on, on solutions. So yeah, certainly I hope, you know, to have an impact in a very vague way just by like I really do think if if people felt a a sliver of of what I feel in the moment when I'm trying to capture certain stories then I then I hope then then to me I've done my job 
truly. So there is this potential for us as documentary storytellers to have impact simply because of the nature of telling these stories and, and documenting them. But how, how best do you think we could have impact under within the existing system? Because obviously there are various forces at play there and forces that might want to maintain a status quo in a particular prevailing narrative, um, whether it's about manta ray conservation or you know, about um, strippers in, in Florida. How, how can we, as documentary storytellers, best try and upend that prevailing narrative or challenge it and, and get people who are maybe, yeah, less, less curious, less engaged, less informed, to take inspiration from that, to take a note of that, and then to, to take action? Yeah, I think, I think that's really hard. I think, I think, to me, you know, as long as... You know, I try to be as transparent and open and authentic um, as I possibly can. And I also try to be, and of course with that, you know, as accurate and <laughs> factual as possible as well, um, but, and also as aware as I can be about the position I'm coming from, my own potential biases and frames of reference, my own privileges, my own... Um, you know, cognitive flaws that we all have as humans, um, you know, in academia, they call that reflexivity. Um, you know, we should all be aware and reflective uh, and examining the perspective from which we are conducting our journalism or research. Um, you know, who, who are we and what institutions do we exist in? What cultures do we exist in? So I think, you know, for me, if I if I'm as honest as, as I can be, and I think that's why a lot of the time my storytelling kind of veers towards the more personal, you know, I don't want to hide the fact that I'm reporting as me, you know, I'm I exist in this world, in this body and and this is how I move in the world and and that comes with all its own connotations and I can certainly be wrong about a lot of things so I think you know with those things it's kind of everything else is kind of beyond my control I think that doesn't mean you know I'm sure I could be doing more to reach certain audiences but I think I've realized and it's taken me a long time to realize you know but for me from my specific background as a woman from Hong Kong who was born to immigrants in Canada and grew up in different environments, you know, with my specific background, I actually am able to provide a perspective that until now, at least in Western media, or actually really any media, hasn't really been all that represented just by virtue of being, you know, a kind of new type of person to have existed. And we all are new types of people, right? But um, so I think it's just like, okay, this is who I am. This is what I see. I'm trying to be as aware as possible of my my potential blind spots and shortcomings and hopefully that in itself provides value because the more perspectives there are the more diversity we have of of who's telling stories of the types of stories we're we're telling and 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 who that reaches just by virtue of those two things i think hopefully that does reach new people and 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 ultimately i mean as you can probably tell i'm a bit of a an optimist and 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 uh dreamer but but i do think like if we are all just you know authentic and and open in our interactions with other people 
I mean, you can't really ask for someone else to be open if you're not open yourself. So I think I'm hoping that that coming from that place allows me to to perhaps reach people who I might not reach otherwise. So talking about biases, obviously you've led a very particular life across multiple cultures. But what biases do you think that you personally bring to the table, to, to your storytelling? Great question. I'm a, you know, cis heterosexual woman. I'm young. I'm able-bodied. I speak perfect English. I'm able to exist in, you know, Western or and male spaces pretty comfortably, which hasn't always been the case, but I am able to. And that's not necessarily the case if, you know, if I had an accent or if I didn't speak English or didn't speak English like this. You know, there's a there's a lot of things that I understand are, are, are privileges. You know, I'm educated. I grew up pretty comfortably. Um, I I don't have mouths to feed. I'm very educated and went to elite institutions. You know, here I'm doing a master's at Oxford. Um, so that certainly is, is a very specific experience of of the world. Um, and I'm and even like I mean one interesting thing that I've realized over the past year since really covering Ukraine actually and moving to Europe, which is my first time living in Europe and you know, we can argue whether the UK is part of it, but uh, it's, uh, you know, coming from Hong Kong, a major global financial city and and sort of being at the, you know, having covered a lot of issues in China and being aware, very aware of what happens in China, um, moving to, to, to the UK and, and covering Ukraine, I've kind of been surprised at how little people in this part of the world know or care about Asia. So I'm kind of grateful that I grew up with a kind of apparently mistaken self-importance. <laughs> um, but that said, of course, like, it, of course, it's an important part of the world. And, you know, we can argue what important means, but, you know, it's, it's you know, in terms of population and area and, and geography and geopolitics and economy, like, of course, it's essential to understanding this world if you want to understand this world at all, especially if you are from the West and walk through the world as if you, you own it or lead it, which, you know, for, for the most part is kind of true, for good or bad, <laughs> mostly bad. But uh, uh, so I think it, it's kind of been a wake-up call to, to remember that, oh, I actually have a lot to offer because of my background and what I know. But on the other hand, like, even just assuming that people know more about or care more about my part of the world than than they actually do is sort of a bias in itself right just like or like a a blind spot so a lot of things that I don't know and and wouldn't claim to know and and I'm always trying to to listen um and learn but I think as with anyone there's always a lot more work to do do you think that perspective is different from Asia looking outwards in terms of their understanding of the world and and say you know what's happening in Europe and North America compared to yeah the western world looking outward and and its lack of understanding of what's happening in Asia and and elsewhere yeah totally i think you know even if i think pretty much if you exist outside of the west however you want to define that right you're always you're always going to be very aware of their existence and their issues and their power struggles because they affect you you know and of course you're always going to be aware of your own personal world and environment and region so you're always going to have at least like your understanding of of your region and place on top of an understanding of of whatever's happening in the west whereas if you're in the west you can get away with 
not really thinking that all that much about the rest of the world, right? Because according to everything you consume for the most part, or according to the most, a lot of the power structures in place, like you are kind of the center of the world and everything else is on the periphery. I think I've realized, you know, at least from my very specific perspective, and I could tell you what's happening in the midterms in the US, not always, but sometimes. But obviously I also know what's happening in Hong Kong, whereas you talk to someone in in the West um, and in, you know, in Europe, they might, they might know what's happening in the midterms in the US and they know what's happening in Europe, but like they don't have to really think about the rest of the world, even though obviously they really should. Yeah, for sure. But that's, that's the thing is, is that colonial mindset that has never actually gone away. And, but it, it maintains this illusion, this perception that somehow Europe or the Western world is insulated from whatever else is going on in the world which is obviously completely false because of globalization and, and everything that's come from that so there is that interconnectivity and and, and obviously covid helped maybe bring that uh, a greater awareness of that interconnectivity and, and interreliance that exists but yeah yeah and, and i understand completely what you're saying and western media plays a role in that in maintaining that lack of awareness of what's actually happening beyond the western world yeah it's very inward looking for sure and even you know going back to like my personal biases like i am constantly sort of questioning myself like how much internalized colonialism and patriarchy and and, you know western centricism have i have do i have you know like obviously like all those powers have affected my life a lot like again like i i sound like this and for no real apparent reason and and like my french is better than my mandarin which also is 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 you know no apparent reason um so i think you know even that just just trying to constantly question like how much have i bought into that how much do i need to unlearn but on the other hand i think you know maybe that internal those internalized things allow me to also understand you know that perspective or allows me to reach them because i seem non-threatening to them or whatever (laughs) so yeah but then it is a case of the west needs to catch up because i suppose these these life experiences have have helped generate an understanding of of that interconnectivity of of the fact that we're all in this together that um we're part of a whole whereas the west because it has been insulating itself and and um, maintaining this this narrative then it's way behind in that thinking that understanding but obviously climate change in particular with with climate change that's something that there's a Yale study that's done like pretty much every year in terms of people's perception in, in North America as to how climate change is impacting them and and related to how it's impacting other demographics so you know people living in a different region to a different part of the americas to a different part of north america and so on and they get closer and closer and closer and the closer they get to the individual the less that individual thinks that it's going to impact them it creates this perception that there's it's somehow geographically distant obviously that's maybe changing now with all the wildfires and and, and the floods and the storms and all these different things that are happening one would think one would think you, you would think so yeah but we'll find out in the next Yale study. But, but there is that, yeah, that, this perception that it's geographically distant. So climate change is one of those other things that because of the global nature of it, it may help that Western kind of perception of the world to catch up and understand that we are one, you know, we're, we're all in this together. And For sure. we need to change that perception, decolonize um, our thinking. It's beyond just just the West versus the rest of the world too, right? I think it's also within, you know, 
you mentioned the media and the part it plays in that, you know, the perspectives that the media or any institutions of power generally represent, definitely at least in the West, is, you know, this white, male, cis, hetero, often like Judeo-Christian perspective. Um, and even within, you know, the West, I use that with quotation marks, uh, there are so many perspectives that are being ignored, you know, women, people of color from, you know, LGBT community or trans people or, or you know, there's so many perspectives even right there in front of them that are being ignored that could provide that diversity of perspective that could change the way we think. And, you know, it's not just abroad. And sometimes I think you do see a lot of that, right? Like a lot of a lot of uh, people in the West who, you know, fit all those check boxes are kind of skipping over everything that's happening in their own country and, and, and just, you know, reaching out to foreign lands and, and calling it a day. That's their exposure to people who live differently, right? Um, but oftentimes it's actually perhaps even more out of our comfort zones uh, and perhaps even more challenging to our established perspectives to encounter those perspectives that are very different to us, but within our own communities or, or countries. So I think, yeah, it's not just the West versus the rest of the world, but just, you know, the traditional white male this hetero perspective versus everything else. <laughs> what what has been your experience of of West? Have you have you worked for Asian media outlets as well? Um, yeah, honestly, mostly for for Western media. Um, my first real journalism job, well, yeah, my first my first job actually was for uh, a digital news organization called Coconuts, and that was Southeast Asia-focused, um, but mostly in English. They did have some sites in, in local languages. And I was doing local news. It was Coconuts Hong Kong. So it was, it's sort of in between. I mean, it's, it was definitely local media. It was local English language media, which is very different from, from who I mostly work for now, you know, bigger international media. And then I went on, after that job, I went on to Vice, and I was covering Asia, but for, you know, our audience on HBO. So yeah, mostly, I mean, yeah, I guess a bit of both, a bit of like local journalism for a local audience and, and, and not. But how, how do you think that differs then? I assume you maybe have connections and relationships with uh, people who are working for different outlets within Hong Kong. So how do you think you working for the likes of Vice and other outlets and reporting on what's happening in Hong Kong and in the region, how do you think that differs to people working for local agencies and, and publications? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it, you know, always comes down to audience, right? As a storytellers, we always have to think about our audience and who we're telling these stories for. And I think I do actually tend to, like when I was, when I was working for, for Coconuts, for example, that, you know, you kind of assume you have certain frames of reference. Um, and even with Hong Kong or maybe probably any sort of culture or community, you know, I, you know, it's like, yeah, who am I, who am I writing for? Like, there are a lot of things that I assume, you know, about Hong Kong, but also you might be an expat or maybe a Hong Konger doesn't speak English and, you know, there's a lot of things like, you know, how much am I going to go ahead and assume that you know or that I'm going to almost purposefully exclude by knowing, by by assuming you or writing for, for someone who, who knows certain frames of reference. And then internationally, yeah, you kind of just have to assume that they have never even thought about the continent of Asia and you're only going to care if it's the most extreme example of a certain thing um, and you're not really allowed that nuance that you might be 
writing for local media. So, you know, I mean, it's hard to, to generalize. There's, you know, talking about how I present stories differently, but there's also like how I work, how it, what it's like to work for different organizations. I think, you know, even when I started, went from working for a local digital media organization to covering local news to, to Vice on Vice News Tonight on HBO. That was a bit of a wake up call because it was kind of like, wow, they don't know anything. And I, you know, at the time I was like 26. It was like, I actually have a lot to offer and I do have friends all over Asia and they don't, they've, they don't have any friends here, you know? So it was, um, but then also things like, like I think it was like a whole year before we had this bi-weekly call and I'm not like shitting on anyone, but it was just like, uh, a wake-up call for me because you know me as like trying to do a good job I, uh, we had a, a bi-weekly call for our team at noon EST perfectly reasonable on a Wednesday uh, every two weeks and for me it was at midnight but you know I'll do my job it's fine and it was like a whole year I think before I was on that call once and there was a colleague with me who's normally based in New York sitting on the call so I think in their head they're like oh someone from New York is on that call wait wait, that's because they're in China wait what time is it there and I was like wait you've set this call midnight my time for a whole year and never even thought about how like time works on this round planet of ours and like you know of course I could have said something but but again, like going back to Structures of Power, I'm 26, 27. It's my first big, you know, it's the first job I'm producing for HBO coming from coconuts. Like, of course, I'm just going to do whatever they want me to and and acknowledge my place as someone who should take calls on, on midnight and Wednesday when they just do it before their lunch break. So I think it's it was it's just constant adjustment of, okay, like my perspective is that valuable precisely because I have a different perspective, but also I have to fight for my perspective precisely because your perspective is so dominant. And then all that while trying to keep your job, (laughs) right? It's, it's a tough, it's a tough balance. And I think thanks in large part to my background where I have always unwittingly or unconsciously sort of straddled or, or, or tiptoed or, navigated and negotiated all these different cultures that are encountering each other all the time or existing in the same place i think i think i do owe a lot of that to to that and then what about your experience being a woman and how how do you think obviously yeah it's going to be all kind of mixed up in uh, the other dimensions of your experience but what do you think within within photography and within documentary filmmaking and and, and the likes what do you think that you know being a woman has impacted your experience yeah i i've been thinking about it a lot over the last year and again sort of have caught myself in realizing how hard it is for any of us to even understand how like it's so hard to understand how someone else might perceive the world because you know i get this question a lot and of course i can tell you all the ways in which it makes it extra hard and I will tell you um but but you know like I actually I don't know what it's like to work in those environments as a dude (laughs) you know as yet another like white male American or European war journalist I actually don't know and there's a lot of things I think I've taken for granted um that I didn't realize doesn't happen to other people. Like I think generally speaking, like in the specific context of, of covering the war in Ukraine, like people are really nice to me. Um, people are very open. They'll take time 
for me, uh, you know, they'll give advice, which, you know, also has pros and cons, but, but I realized like, yeah, I think, um, apparently that doesn't happen to everyone, but it's also, again, like you said, it's not necessarily just because of the fact I'm a woman, right? You know, I'm a, you know, trying to be reflexive, but like I'm a, a warm, open, smiley, friendly woman. Um, and I think I come across as probably not threatening and, you know, probably people perceive, you know, it's surprising for them to see me there. And I think they're probably grateful to, to be talking to a journalist who's not just yet another white male, (laughs) European or American, uh, North American. So, so I think that I, I just, just, you know, it's not necessarily just a woman, but just the way I'm perceived. Um, but yeah, that said, being a woman, I think I, you know, I, I do consider it privilege in that I'm, pr- I'm very comfortable in, in male environments. I mean, maybe comfortable, I mean, yes, comfortable, but also just used to. Like, you know, I grew up playing rugby, of course, you know, with a fellow girl, with other girls and, and women. But like I, I'm able to, I generally, by, just by virtue of the things I'm interested in, easily gain respect from straight cis dudes because you know I play a sport that is perceived as being manly which you know we can question or I you know I'm athletic and I can usually lift more than most men I come across so you know I so there's all these things you know and I can handle myself in intense situations like war and um so I think there's all these things that just because they are perceived as traditionally masculine or manly, I'm able to earn their respect more easily than, than someone who might not be able to do those things, even though obviously they would be just as worthy of equal consideration and respect. Um, but yes, so I mean, as a woman, I think I tend to be, especially in Ukraine, like the only one for miles <laughs> Uh, certainly the only person of color for miles, certainly the only woman of color often for miles, not always the case, thankfully. But, uh, you know, I think people, like the bar is low. Like I think people are just impressed by the fact that I am in the country. On one hand, I'm very appreciative of their their appreciation. But on the other hand, it is a bit condescending, you know, <laughs> that I'm getting points just for being within the borders of Ukraine when you know, to do my job, just like my peers in the industry, I have to be, often have to be at the very front lines. Um, or there's this overprotectiveness, which again has pros and cons. You know, I appreciate people looking out for me. It's war. Of course you want people to be looking out for you and anyone who pretends otherwise is, is being stupid. Um, you know, I'm glad that, and it's my first war that I've covered. And in any case, like no one's, no one in this generation has ever covered a war like this. And there ha- kind of hasn't been a war like this in human history. So, you know, we're all kind of figuring it out. And so, like, I appreciate as many data points and, and, and tips and advice that I can get. But on the other hand, that it's almost overprotective. Like, I've had multiple soldiers tell me straight up, like, you know, in terms of access as a journalist, they're like, you know, if you're just some – and this is these are, these are their words, you know. If you're just a middle-aged, like, pot-bellied, balding journalist dude, like, yeah, whatever, you can come with us. If you die, we don't care. But with you, like, I would care 
if you died and therefore I probably wouldn't let you do the things that I would let that person or you know there's an extra consideration like if you know in an absolute worst case scenario like if we get captured like what happens to you is going to be a lot worse than than everyone else um and therefore I'm not going to let you do certain things that I will let someone else which is like you know it's like oh like thank you for caring about my life on the other hand like I deserve to be cared as little about as the other guy you know so it's 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 uh yeah there's just like this I kind of feel like yeah, they like see me as like sometimes as like a cute, innocent thing that needs to be protected and taken care of. And on one hand, I'm like, by all means, we're in war. Like, please protect me. But on the other hand, like, don't treat me like a, a an innocent thing that can't make decisions for themselves either. Um, so it's it's tough, um, you know, and or even things that are way more overt, like uh, you know, Ukraine is a is a very traditional society, and um, oftentimes, and I've told this to multiple men, and they'd be like, "Oh, really? Like I didn't know that. I never realized that." Like, oftentimes, if I'm standing with a group of men and a new man comes to introduce himself or like just shake everyone's hand, they'll they'll just skip me. <laughs> they'll like go around shaking the hand of everyone in the circle and just like skip me. And I'll have to be like put my hand in their face, like shake my hand. Or I'll just be like, today's not the day. Now is not the time to be fighting that fight. Um so or you know, there's there's another time and again it was like a it was like a I don't know, like a some commander of some sort and was just like saying kind of like condescending things to me about like, you know, I was kind of pushing for access to something and as a journalist does and he's kind of like you know like if you if you'd blown up like I had then you wouldn't be chasing those things and like just like oh my god shut up um and then at one point he literally we're having dinner and he literally like asked the men at the table to like go outside for a smoke and left the woman there and I was just like really like okay you know so there's a lot of pros and and those are actually the types of things that people like to remind me of when I'm in the field by people I mean men you know they're I I do get a lot of like straight up sexist comments like oh like you must have it real easy like because like the soldiers will talk to you blah 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 and and but they ignore all the other things the fact that people even just question my presence or ignore me entirely and also like if you look at the coverage of Ukraine right now like it is mostly still just like white male journalists and white male photographers you know it's 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 you know they love I often get comments loving to point out all those supposed advantages I get but like if it were true then surely like it would only be women of color covering all these topics and that's certainly not the case and in fact I think women photograph their statistics for 2022 showed that like I think women were represented less than the year before in terms of I, I believe it was photographers who who landed on the front page of major Western newspapers. So yes, that was a a long rant, rant, sensitive topic as you can tell, um, but definitely one worth talking about. And you know, because there aren't as many women journalists or especially women photographers covering the war, I think it is important that we talk about our perspectives because they're kind of the only ones we have to represent that voice in this specific context. Yeah, but it also just shows just how far we've yet to go in terms of like addressing these situations, this, this imbalance. But also, I suppose it raises, you know, the point around what a Western media or what a Western audience is getting exposed to because, 
you know, if it's the case that it is the white Western bloke who's getting access to these things and, and getting these stories and they're of a particular mindset and they're, you know, their experience is going to be very particular because of the history of, of that, the, the kind of colonial past around that and everything, that that too is maintaining and, and shaping uh, what people see and, and what they what they know about a particular situation and event you know if that's happening in the field then you know it's also happening in the editorial suites of of these publications and outlets just it shows how far we've we've got to go before thing this this is addressed in terms of this imbalance yeah the maintaining of that status quo and and therefore the the narratives that are being maintained as a consequence of that for sure and i think you know because there's such a long way to go i think really i mean the onus is on people who do have a seat at the table, who are making those decisions, who are in power to question their own perspectives and, and what voices they are or not including. Because, you know, oftentimes we we talk about representation and diversity, equality, inclusion, and it's sort of the onus is almost put on the people who aren't representative to fight for a seat at the table and and they are but ultimately you know considering how far we have to go it's on people including myself who you know I do have a seat at the table for for several reasons and um it is also on people like me to 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 think about like how can we use whatever positions we have to be questioning the status quo and how we can how we can do better um but you know, obviously easier said than done. Um, And I think, again, for better, for worse, like it almost ends up, I almost feel more responsibility because I almost (laughs) don't think, you know, I, for, for, from experience, like I, I am very skeptical that left to their own devices that, you know, boardrooms of, of straight white guys will be thinking of these things. And because I have a tiny, tiny, perspective and seat at the table I have the ear of some of them a little bit then like and because I am aware of all the things that we could be doing better on all the voices from our perspective I almost feel like um you know I should be fighting harder or maybe that's just maybe that's not fair of me I don't know (laughs) yeah not not harder but just keep going (laughs) don't give up you know just maintain that what you're doing and and be that voice because yeah, you have that unique perspective, you know, across cultures and, and experiences. So you have, and you have that awareness because of, of who you are as an individual and, and everything that you bring to the table. So, which is incredibly valuable. So I think, yeah, you don't necessarily have to push harder, but hopefully more people with similar perspective will collectively, we can push things in the right direction and then challenge the status quo and, and get to the point where things maybe are more aligned with what we know can be and how things should be yeah yeah thank you thank you for that you're right you're absolutely right and I think I did need to hear that and you know it's uh and yeah I was having this conversation with a friend you know she's a a woman of color director of photography she's working on her own documentary in Iraq and I know she does often get discouraged and actually she's kind of looking for a way out of not necessarily industry but you know at least as a as a DP and and I think and then she was also talking about all these conversations and arguments she has with like dudes of, and, you know, fighting for what she believes in and how, and I was telling her like, you shouldn't expend your 
energy like that on these people on these conversations and she's like but you know like every you know every person whose mind I can change or the needle you know if I can just like shift their needle tiny bit like isn't that what I should be doing like doesn't that make a difference if I don't do that am I not then just giving up and and I was telling her like look like you by virtue just like main staying in this industry and fighting for the ability to just continue your work is so incredibly valuable in itself that you actually do like being protective of your energy is arguably more valuable for these bigger causes because it'll allow you to continue this work rather than just fighting and banging your head against a wall to try to convince these people who don't want to be convinced or who aren't listening in the first place. So yes, you're, you're totally right. I think we all need to be reminded sometimes that um, I think especially women, especially women of color, people of color that, you know, just sheer, just doing your work and advocating for yourself is an active resistance that is helping to challenge <clears throat> all, all those power structures and status, status quos in the first place. And I think hopefully, you know, we all get better at, at self-care and taking care of ourselves for, for that exact reason. Yeah, exactly. Because it's important to maintain the optimism and that optimism is, is kind of fed by maintaining your own health, mental and physical health. And, and so if you suffer from burnout, then inevitably that's going to impact on, on how you perceive the world and maybe diminish your optimism. And and then, yeah, maybe you give up. And, and if you give up, then yeah, you've failed. You've failed to kind of do that thing that you have the potential to do because you have that unique perspective and, and that um, that diverse perspective and those lived experiences that give you this this greater more complex, more colorful understanding of, of the world. And so, yeah, obviously self-care is, is critical for that because, you know, more and more people who have this kind of greater, a more complex and comprehensive understanding of the world that we live in and are storytellers and therefore have the capacity, the, the ability to, to shape stories, new stories, get those in front of audiences who are going to be receptive to it. So we can not change culture overnight necessarily, but we can help you know, shape it in a way that, again, just represents how we know the world can be. Totally, totally. And you know, I always say this like kind of lightheartedly to like women, friends or people of color, just like like taking a nap is is resistance, you know, like your skincare routine is is resistance. And it's true, like anything you do to to take care of yourself when intentionally or not, this is I mean, if you if you like you said, if you burn out, if you stop making work, if you stop letting your voice be heard, then then they've won. That's what that's what they wanted. Then, you know, then it goes back to the way it was and and your voice isn't heard and things continue as is. So anything you can do to fight that this constant grading on your self-esteem on your will to continue on this self-belief that you are worthy and your work is worthy then that to me is worthy so yes napping is resistance and going to get a pedicure is resistance but yeah I think uh, self-care is is resistance Um, that's something I repeat a lot and also understanding that you're not alone that there are many people out there who want the same thing and that are pushing in the same direction and if we can just yeah just maintain our own personal energy and and what we're bringing to the table but also work together and collaborate more and get more stories out there and because we're stronger together and that's in part what's motivated me to do this podcast to get people like yourself on and, and discussing these things so more people understand 
the need to be driven by a desire to have impact and to to challenge culture and the status quo and and the the privilege that we have the unique opportunity we have as documentary storytellers to participate that in that process in a in a more significant way than most people would for sure for sure i think you know solidarity is something that is so important and probably not spoken about enough i think we all owe it to each other and that's really the only way we could advance is is just holding each other up as we've said a few times you know that we're all in this together and that and that we kind of need to take care of each other and that's really you know obviously true for humanity at large like the sooner we realize our interdependence the the better for everyone but yeah it's so important think about the different perspectives that we're not actually necessarily thinking about and to to reach a hand across and pull them up to you know and it's not just across different cultures or countries but you know like what are the different ways in which you can forge solidarity um it's not just women it's you know or it's not just people of color it's not just just going beyond our 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 different identities and and figuring out how we can all help each other and support each other and learn about each other's causes diverging to a whole different subject matter you're well assuming because obviously you're busy with so many different things so maybe this is possibly why it's a long-term project <laughs> but I wonder if you if you've moved forward with it yet or you know if uh, where you're at with it but on traditional Chinese medicine culture and the environment you're saying that you, you've started this long-term project where where are you with that and and where is that going very good question I think there was a point over the last like 18 months where I was like oh yeah forgot I was working about that <laughs> Honestly, COVID kind of put a big damper because I couldn't go back to Hong Kong or China. Um, and that's where really most of it was. Um, and I also feel like COVID just kind of added. I mean, it was it was funny because like on one hand, I think what I was working on was so relevant to the global discourse, especially in the early days of the pandemic when they're, you know, all the talk about wet markets and like all the racist stuff like bat soup or whatever and 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 then the resulting wave in anti-asian racism and violence across well the western world where asian people are in the minority and but on the other hand yeah it just like added so much more complexity but ultimately yeah i just haven't because i haven't really been able to go back to the places that where i would probably be doing a lot of it i haven't had the chance to to work on it um and also this this manta ray project um so my dissertation and i actually got a grant from national geographic to do a very you know a, a related project just about manta rays or different perspectives of it i guess all that to say i guess it's on pause <laughs> for now maybe i'll forget about it forever because sometimes that happens by accident i hope not but a big reason why i wanted why I started that project in the first place was looking at the impact of all these different, or just examining these different supply chains in Chinese medicine or, or like folk Chinese medicine. And I just found that so fascinating. Like I, the one, I think piece that I did really well, I'm actually looking at some prints of them from the project. Uh, but you know, I was looking at the deer, like where deer antlers come from. And I, I went to, I even went to like a deer farm in <laughs> New Zealand. I don't even know what year this was anymore. I went to a, deer, a farm in New Zealand that actually specialized in producing antler for this industry, you know, tried to trace it back all the way to, to Asia. Um, so yeah, there's the environmental impact, just like the crazy th fact that these supply chains exist, but also, you know, who's using it and why, and also examining the different 
the way it's perceived and portrayed, especially in the West and how that ties into racism, essentially. And so my dissertation about the media and manta ray conservation, um, for me, it's a case study. It's an academic way of continuing that project. It's a case study because, yeah, it's a case study in how this trade, this practice that is part of wider Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, the, the very real environmental impact, you know, of, of the trade in manta ray gills for Chinese medicine, obviously comes from dead manta ray gills. Obviously that's bad. But on the other hand, how that's portrayed in the media and how whether these portrayals are perpetuating or even creating new anti-Asian racist narratives and tropes. So I guess I'm continuing that that topic, but from an, from an academic perspective. And when I do come around to doing the National Geographic project that I got a grant for that will be sort of a more visual exploration but yeah a lot of a lot of things on on the back burner I'm constantly juggling a lot of things and I'm sort of getting to a point where I, I just sort of accept that I'll have like a 10 to 20 percent fail rate just because that's who I am and how I work but this project in particular Chinese medicine and manta rays and all that like a I need to get my dissertation done and b I do really care about it I think it's really just more of a broader conversation about how the media is often guilty of 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 perpetuating uh racist or sexist tropes and and narratives and that also like kind of feeds back into you know everything we've spoken about just like this issue of chinese medicine and its impact on the environment um whether and i think that's kind of why i wanted to look at it academically because i really do feel like i have a very specific point to make and I want to make it I want to spend time reading and and finding the vocabulary and building off the work and and thoughts of other people who have come before me just like we have very real environmental problems that we need to solve for the sake of literally everyone and everything on this planet but our inability to understand each other is getting in that way because you know how do we have these conversations about cultural practices that need to be had but can trigger sort of friction or disagreement about how to approach them you know it's a very it's a very sensitive thing right like western conservationists telling chinese people that their culture is wrong and barbaric and unsustainable like that's not going to go down well if there isn't a real attempt at at understanding both perspectives and again, like I think for me as someone with my background, like I grew up using Chinese medicine, I still do. And I'm also getting a master's in biodiversity and conservation from Oxford. And I'm also a member of the wider media industry. So, you know, I have a very specific perspective that I think I have a very specific point to make that I actually think like almost there's very few people out there who are able to make that point. So I feel like I really need to make it and that's why like I need to write this dissertation like yes maybe 10 people will read it but at least like I have those thoughts down and I can build on that and I've you know done my part at least for academia and hopefully conservation but yeah it's it's yet another project that seems very specific and (laughs) not related to all the other things I'm working on but for me is is actually related to all of the above. So the point that you're trying to make or that you would like to make with your your study what exactly is that because you're saying you've got this point that you want to make and you're delving into it and you're exploring it. But, but what is that point exactly? Good, good question. And I, and I, you know, very aware of, of the dangers of going into research, like with a, an aim or, or an argument and, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And I'm not, I'm still very open and, and I have been criticized by my professors for making things too personal, <laughs> which I think is kind of 
unfair and flawed in itself. Um, but, you know, of course, like all research in journalism is done from a certain perspective. So like, but anyway, um, I think my point is like with Manta Ray Gill specifically, let's take that as an example. The consumption of Manta Ray Gills for Chinese medicine is problematic in that it is having an impact on populations of a species or of several species that are endangered or threatened with extinction. And therefore, that practice should be probably mitigated or questioned. But on the other hand, the narrative that I had bought into, and that's why I got interested in this topic in the first place, is that this demand, this trade, is driving the extinction, the decline of numbers of these species. And the more I looked into it, like I had applied to do a PhD on this, like, I don't even know now, like in 2016, um, I've been interested in this for a long time and I've been looking into it. And the more I looked into it, the more it just didn't seem to add up. You know, there are targeted fisheries for manta rays for the trade, meaning there are, you know, fishermen going out specifically trying to catch manta rays for their gills to sell them for this market. But there's also like not that many <laughs> and it's complicated. Like it's, it's, it's complicated, but you know, a, a, mostly manta rays are being caught. Like when they are caught, it's mostly as bycatch, meaning it's like unintentional and therefore I was like wait how is the the demand for this the driving force for their extinction if it's not even driving fisheries and the more I looked into it the more I realized how this specific problem while it is a problem you know I personally don't think anyone should be eating manta rays and certainly not manta ray gills for folk Chinese medicine that's not even necessarily condoned by the by institutional Chinese medicine on the other hand I think it's been given a disproportionate amount of attention and also painted in a certain way that is like pretty subtly racist and also certainly sparking a lot of racist discourse and it's basically blaming this specific cultural practice while completely ignoring the fact that it's actually the fact that the whole world is eating seafood that manta rays and any pretty much marine species that uh, is in decline um so it's just my point is that i think conservation and media about conservation have perhaps unwittingly perpetuated unfair and racist narratives in the name of conservation when in fact they're factually incorrect or at least misleading and allows us to allows everyone to deflect blame to 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 blame you know some evil foreign exotic cultural practice um which is also just lazy <laughs> um and and ultimately the end result is that we're not actually saving or protecting manta rays as best we could right if we were diverting if we're using all that energy and narratives and, and media coverage to actually present the problem truthfully, then we'd be able to spend resources and attention on the real problem and actually, I argue, or want to argue, have more effective conservation, which is ultimately the goal here, right? And and like alienating your target audience or alienating a large chunk of the world like isn't gonna help anyone. Like it's just bad conservation no matter how you look at it even you know it's like it's so it's just I don't know if that really explained it but yeah I'm hoping I'm hoping to improve conservation and conservation storytelling by pointing out how oftentimes the narratives are not actually evidence-based and in fact perpetuating unfair or unbased 
or not fully accurate uh, racist narratives, which you see a lot, right, with COVID and Chinese medicine and wildlife trades and, and all that to say, again, like I'm not defending any of these trades. No one should eat rhino horn or shark's fin or manta ray gills. And it's like, I actually have to like say that explicitly a lot of the time because all of a sudden I'm a China apologist, which is ironic considering I usually get accused of the other thing if I'm talk- covering other topics. So, but yeah, I think uh, it's just... A very niche thing that not a lot of people would be paying attention to. And therefore, I feel like it's my job. And also, it, you know, it's a topic for my dissertation so I can finish this degree. <laughs> yeah, but it's fantastic and, and really important. You know, the fact that you investigated this, you've discovered this and, and that you you have gained this insight on, on the situation and, and all the different forces at play in terms of maintaining a false narrative and, and that's counterproductive in terms of the conservation process and also yeah is is racist has these racist tones and ultimately is doing nothing to actually address the fundamental systemic change that's needed uh, yeah so if if they truly wanted to conserve the biodiversity then they should be looking elsewhere and they should be looking at the the root cause not just the easy yeah it's, it's sloppy and and lazy exactly it's just it is yeah and 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 like i've had conservationists pretty much admit as much like you got to go for the easiest target like the easiest thing that you can address and stop which is fine and that's fair and it like it is one part of a bigger puzzle but you know it's the way it's presented. If it's presented as the whole entire problem itself, then you're not really doing what you're claiming to, are you? No, you're, you're complicit in maintaining something. But um, yeah, so uh, but but we'll see. I need to write it. So check back in September 1st and, and ask if I've submitted my dissertation. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think you'll definitely have more than 10 people read it. Uh, something like that. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. That's one thing because you're doing it within this academic context, but it's a it's an incredibly important issue that you're that you're exploring, you're investigating, that you're picking apart, and that you're communicating on. That needs to get out in the public domain. Ultimately, it's it's no good within a cloistered environment because ten people will read it. Whereas you know what's needed is um, a mass or you know a bigger audience to to witness that to obtain this realization that okay this whole approach is flawed and we need to change it and um, we need this systemic change. And do you have any intention of of kind of bridging that gap then between academia and the general public and and starting to explore it visually as well? Yeah, for sure. So the the National Geographic grant that I got was for, I think the the project title is a a visual geography of human manta ray relations in the 21st century. So it's 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 a little bit out there, but it, it is essentially like the visual component of a wider topic I'm trying to also explore. So sir, yes, for sure like I wouldn't want this to to end at my my student portal when I submit my dissertation um and would want to to bring it to a wider audience but I think I mean I've been so grateful for for everything I've learned in this master's and what I'm still learning because oftentimes you know we have I think like you know I have a lot of like I like feel a certain way about a lot of things that I can't quite articulate it or I don't know why and and thankfully you know in the structure of academia there's there's you know endless numbers of people who are much smarter and put a lot more time and thought into these kinds of topics that I can pull from. And it allows me to slowly be able to articulate and argue, hopefully clearly, that why I think there's a problem, which will only make me a better communicator when I do, when I am ready to sort of try to convey this to a wider audience and and will make me a lot more 
thoughtful and intentional about how I want to tell the story and the point that I'm trying to make. So for me, it's all part of the same process. And even though like, you know, I do have to finish this dissertation, <laughs> it all will, I think, only inform the, the, the more broader storytelling I hope to do. So, you know, for that project, I'm hoping I need to go back and look what I had actually proposed because at this point it was like two years ago that I submitted that proposal. But I think I was hoping to make like a like a book that's sort of like a cross-cultural photo book that sort of would be able to tell a story in few words and also a short film about just the way people all over the world relate to manta rays and how those ideas sort of conflict with each other. And yeah, that will probably be a few years down the line because I need to finish this, not just this dissertation, but also my documentary, our documentary in Ukraine. So watch this space. I'm a bit of a slow burn. <laughs> but then in, in terms of your career, then like you've, you've got all these different layers to your practice, I suppose, you know, in terms of the, the writing and the filmmaking and, and, and then academia and photography. So you've got all these different layers, but and obviously you've also obtained this award from National Geographic, which is going to help your, your career within documentary storytelling. But how do you push forward? How do you kind of uh, move your, your career forward within that sphere? <laughs> what is your master plan? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, you know, uh, in summary, I don't know. <laughs> but it is something I've been thinking about a lot because really the only thread in common between all these things is just me. But then how how do I make me <laughs> into a career? And of course, I am able to just keep doing random things, but it's not necessarily sustainable because A, I don't think it's actually the best way for me to present my work because it's you know basically all these different interests and ideas are spread out across all these different outlets that you'd only and like because I'm not the best at promoting my work I you basically have to follow my Instagram stories extremely carefully in order to keep track of everything I'm doing and like who is doing that no one not even my mom and I don't even post everything on Instagram so so it's like I don't know how do I bring all this under one umbrella that is me but also like how do I turn me into a career that you know is actually sustainable financially I don't know I think I think to some extent I'm in the process of understanding that I kind of need to acknowledge that in the first place. Like, you know, for me, I could, you know, I think there's thankfully, you know, good friends and, and mentors who see the, the, the value of my work and my perspective and how, you know, the sum is greater than its parts who are, who are pushing me towards seeing, looking that way. Um, I don't know what the next step would be. I already have a hard enough time just like, writing a hundred word bio for myself or even like coming up with the title to how to describe myself on like, I don't know, like LinkedIn. So, or like name badges. So I don't know. I, I am trying to figure that out. You know, how like a, like overcoming that resistance to acknowledging that like I have something valuable to contribute and that that should require like intention um, and that there's a way to almost like scale up what I'm doing and also get the, you know, more support and resources. Cause I, considering how all over the place I am like I have a lot of ideas that I don't necessarily execute and if I just had some help I could probably take things a lot further so I think yeah I'm, I'm figuring that out honestly I don't know maybe it's like just like a production company that does all the different things or I don't know I think right now for me personally I just my focus is finishing this Ukraine documentary seeing that through that's sort of my 
passion project baby right now should be my dissertation but unfortunately it's not all as much as I care about it um finishing my dissertation and then I think and then I can hopefully really think about okay what's next like how what can I do in order to keep doing what I want to do and reach more people I don't know if anyone can figure that out please please help me definitely a work in progress yes 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 yeah well so i'll just i'll, I'll end with this one question and um what currently active documentary storytellers are a source of inspiration for you at the minute mm, great question um i really love julia kochetova's work she's a ukrainian photojournalist her instagram handle is Seamere, s-e-a-m-e-e-r i believe and i really love how she uses Instagram as sort of a personal diary of the war and to me I don't know how she defines herself or how she sees herself um but you know she's a photojournalist but like for me it's it's actually the the writing that she that accompanies her posts and and the way she she arranges it um you know it's extremely personal and heartfelt and and really I think it's almost it's more almost it's more poetry really just a very she gives very visceral and emotional and raw slices of of what it's like for her as a Ukrainian photojournalist covering the war and and to me you know journalists are often you know told and trained to be as objective and neutral as possible but I think actually you know voices like hers prove how important it is to have those really personal perspectives so that we could all understand what it really is like to have your country be at war. Um, there's, so there's Julia, Hannah Reyes Morales, who I'm lucky to call a friend. She's a Filipino photographer. Her work is also very tender and very emotional and, and intimate. And I always strive to, you know, always think about how she approaches her work and, and her stories and the people she works with and, and what she's trying to, the types of stories she's trying to convey. Natalie Kessar, who's a photojournalist from, from New York, from Brooklyn, who also has been working a lot in Ukraine. And her work is also, you know, she has a very distinctive visual style and is covering the war in a way that's very different from everyone else. It's almost very like symbolic and and metaphorical often and yeah there's Hind Hassan also a good friend she's a correspondent for Vice News I've had I've been lucky to call her a friend and colleague for years now but she's just so tenacious and incredibly hardworking and has so much empathy for everyone that she works with or you know is, is doing stories on and so principled and and you know, always puts the story first while also, you know, always advocating for herself as a journalist within this industry. I really admire that. Um, I think oftentimes in journalism or documentary storytelling, it's a constant battle between ego and the actual story. And I think she's incredible in that she really has worked so hard to be where she is and isn't afraid to ask for what she deserves, but at the same time would never let that compromise her ethics or her responsibility as a journalist um, and human being to to the people she's doing stories on. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, and thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it it's been great chatting to you and uh yeah thank you so much it's been it's been a real pleasure and thanks for giving me the space and time to sort of hash out all these floating ideas in my head no worries it's a pleasure and and yeah good luck with the 
the documentary, the Korean documentary. Good luck with the dissertation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Documentary Storytellers podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Laurel. You can find links to her work in the show notes, along with all the people, organizations, and work referenced in the interview. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and to the newsletter at documentarystorytellers.com forward slash newsletter. And please help more people to learn about Laurel's work and the work of everyone I've interviewed by sharing this and other episodes with everyone and anyone you think who might be interested. If you have any feedback or would like to help me with the production of the podcast, then please email me at chris at documentarystorytellers.com. Thanks again, and until next time, take care.